As you remember, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was accused because some of the Jews who saw Stephen, who was mighty in Scripture and full of the Holy Spirit, declaring and proclaiming Jesus Christ, some of the Jews brought an accusation and a charge of blasphemy that is worthy of death. And of course, you all know that is exactly what they would do to him. They will kill him. And they brought these false accusations saying that, Stephen, we we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's an accusation that is both full of deceit and dripping with contempt for Jesus. This Jesus, they were saying. And so starting chapter 7, verse 1, Stephen began to defend himself. And in the first 16 verses of chapter 7, Stephen surprisingly, but very wisely, uh, began with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs, all to demonstrate how Abraham himself with Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs, they were hoping in Christ and that they were themselves saved by God's Savior to come. And now Stephen continues his defense and he now takes uh, his critics, his accusers, and he now takes us to Moses to demonstrate from Moses' life that he Himself, Moses himself followed Christ. So that is what is happening in this passage. And the first thing to note is uh, make some observations about God's people in Egypt. God's people in Egypt. So last week we ended with how the 12 patriarchs, Jacob's uh, 12 sons, all ended up in Egypt. And verse 17, it continues saying, but at the time, but as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And so in earlier part of chapter 7, in verse 6, Stephen recalled God's word to Abraham in Genesis 15, because God came to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he told Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And what God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15 came true when God first brought Joseph to Egypt. You remember Joseph one of Jacob's uh, 12 sons. He was favored by his father because Jacob from the earliest days of Joseph could sense that God's favor was upon him. But Joseph's brothers were enraged by the favoritism. They were jealous and angry with Joseph and they, they sold Joseph as a slave. And then Joseph was brought to Egypt And then he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And in prison, he labored with faithfulness, helping people around him, only to be forgotten by him. 
by them. Joseph suffered for many years without an inkling of understanding of why God brought him to Egypt to suffer like this. Because it would be many years of suffering before Joseph began to realize that Joseph, he suffered for so long and so greatly so that he might save his kindred. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? Joseph, after his many years of suffering, rose to the power of influence, and in the position of influence, he prepared for the great famine that was to come. And in time, there was a severe famine. And that severe famine brought Jacob's household to Egypt, where they were reconciled to Joseph. And in Egypt, because of Joseph's many years of suffering, their lives were spared, and in Egypt, they flourished. But Joseph's many years of hard suffering did not only benefit his own family, because we read in Genesis that Joseph's suffering actually resulted in in the blessing for Egypt as well. And so Joseph's suffering... uh, It resulted in Egypt also being spared from the great and severe famine. And the grateful Pharaoh, knowing that God has shown the mercy through Joseph, that Pharaoh honored Joseph greatly. But after 400 years, we read here, there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And we read in Exodus chapter 1 that this Pharaoh oppressed the Hebrews and made their lives bitter with hard service, and he ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And we further read that this Pharaoh commanded the midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. It was a genocide. It was an ethnic cleansing. But it was actually more than that, too. Because, you see, behind this Pharaoh's evil command stood Satan, engineering the demise of the messianic line so that God's promise to Abraham would fail. That's what's going on. But before we move on, I want to raise a question with you. Why does God do this? Why? Why ordain for Abraham a lifetime of wandering? Why ordain for Jacob the bitter pain of losing a son? Can you imagine the ache in his heart for years and years that never went away? Why ordain for Jacob and his sons the hardship of famine? Doesn't God love them? Why ordain great suffering for Joseph? Why ordain this evil oppression for the Hebrews? Why must the Hebrew parents see their sons, infant sons, being murdered? Why does God do this? And the question is, why does God allow evil? 
To be perfectly honest, there is no easy answer to that question. Why God ordains and allows evil. And it seems to me so often the answers that people give just feel so inadequate. And I think in this life, we will perhaps never really find the perfect answer to the question. But as our hearts ache and as we wonder, what this passage allows us to see is that we see a glimmer of hope through loss because God comes to help when all earthly hope is lost. And that brings us to the second observation this morning, God's gift of Moses. So in verse 20, we read, at this time, at what time? When the Pharaoh was terribly oppressing the Hebrew people, when the infant boys were being put to death, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And now, this is where Stephen begins this long section, long reflection about Moses, and his thoughts and words about Moses are full of affection and reverence for Moses. And that really proves false the accusation against him that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, because Steve, uh, Stephen actually has a deeper appreciation of Moses than the Jews who thought themselves his loyal disciples did. And Stephen divides Moses' life into three periods of 40 years each. And at every stage of his life, Stephen shows us how God was teaching Moses to hope in Christ. So comes, first come the early 40 years of Moses' life. So Moses was born at this time. He was born when the Hebrews had no hope left. His parents kept him hidden for three months. Have you ever tried to stop a baby from crying? I wonder what, with what terror and anxiety his parents lived with the first three months, trying to hide their newborn baby's son from being discovered until they came to that dreadful day when they realized they could not hide him any longer. And I'm sure with hearts breaking, they put him in their little basket. And with tears in their eyes, they cast him into God's care and they sent him floating down the river. Can you imagine the pain, the grief that they experienced? But in God's amazing providence, the Pharaoh's daughter rescued Moses. And she herself adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And it seems that at the end of 40 years, the first 40 years, a realization has dawned on Moses that he realizes that he was ideally placed to help his people. And perhaps he began to sense that God had called him to save his people. 
But when he went out to and help his brothers, his attempt to help his brothers, the children of Israel, was an unmitigated disaster. In anger, he ended up murdering an Egyptian. And the very next day, he thought his, his brothers would be so grateful and be so welcoming of him. But the Hebrews rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And with this, with the realization perhaps that he was not the man that he thought he was, disappointed, terrified, Moses became an exile in the land of Midian. That's the first 40 years of Moses' life. Then come the middle 40 years. We read how all the wisdom of Egyptians that Moses learned, it actually did not equip Moses to be God's instrument because Moses was ready only after 40 years spent in God's school of suffering where he became emptied of himself. And it was at the end of those 40 years in the wilderness, only then an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Now, who is this angel? And this is critical for what Stephen is arguing. This angel, he was sent by God. And because he was sent by God, he was not the sender himself. But notice, from his mouth came the very words of the Lord himself. Verse 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and God of Isaac, and of Jacob. So who is this? One who is sent by the Lord himself. So he is not the same as the Lord. And yet from his own mouth come the words of the Lord. And he says, I am the God of your fathers. You know, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ appearing in a visible form to people before his birth. The one who is distinct from the Father, yet one in essence, so that he can be both one who is sent by God and one from whom we hear God's very voice. And it was this angel, this pre-incarnate Christ, who called Moses into his service. That is... You know, these Jews, they were accusing Stephen. When you preach Christ, you are corrupting the true religion that we receive from Moses. We cannot stray. We cannot betray Moses and be right with God. But what Stephen is arguing, don't you see? It was Christ himself who called Moses in the bush. Don't you see? It was Christ himself who commissioned Moses into his ministry. Moses followed Christ into his calling long before there was the temple and that was the, the accusation wasn't it this man Stephen he's speaking blasphemous things against this holy place this holy temple but long before the temple the place where Moses met Christ was the holy place and so we hear the angel of the Lord saying take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is the holy ground. You see, 
These Jewish people that were accusing Stephen of blaspheming the holy place, the holy temple. But holiness belongs to the presence of Christ. It does not belong to the temple when it has become the building that has rejected Christ. You see, that's what Stephen is demonstrating here. You see, Moses himself was called by Christ. Moses himself met with Christ, and that place where he met Christ was the holy place. And then come the last 40 years of Moses' life. And Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent us both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. You know, what's fascinating is this. Moses, in his youth, we read, was mighty in his words and deeds. And he was so confident of his abilities and position and strength, and he went out to deliver his people, which was an unmitigated disaster. And in the next 40 years, he is in the wilderness, being emptied of himself, learning through suffering, so that when the Lord meets Moses in the bush and commissions him, do you remember what Moses said about himself? I am not a man who can speak well. Isn't that interesting? Uh, The man who in his youth was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses realized, it's not in me. I don't have what it takes. He's humbled. He's been emptied. And that is why when God takes this emptied, humbled man, He does not send Moses in his own strength and gifts and abilities, but he sends him in the power of Christ. And it was with the power of Christ. If you doubt this, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how Paul explicitly identifies the rock that led Israel and Moses was Christ. Moses did not lead his people out of Egypt in his own strengths and gifts and abilities, but it was done in the power of Christ who had called him into service. And that is why Moses said, and this is where Stephen is quoting Moses' words from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, what's interesting is that Moses said this in Deuteronomy 18, shortly before his death. And Moses adds there, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You see, Moses learned, having led Israel for 40 years in the Exodus, wandering through wilderness, he had learned and he had seen how hopelessly hardened the Hebrews' hearts were. And then he realized that the only way that these people can be saved is if a prophet like me comes who, through suffering, leads God's people in the power of God. And that is why Moses said, God will send you another prophet like me. You must listen to him. 
You see, Moses, the man who was called by Christ into service, the man who served God in the power of Christ, he was longing for Christ. That is why you see, do you see, Stephen was only doing what he had learned from Moses. Moses said, God will send you a prophet like me. Listen to him. And Stephen listened to Moses. And that is why he listened to Christ. And do you see here how skillfully, wisely, and scripturally Stephen defends himself against the false accusations and demonstrates that it was not he who had strayed from the ways of their fathers, but it was the Jewish people who refused Moses' words and command to listen to Jesus. So that's the second thing that we see, which brings us to the third point, our lesson from Moses. And here, I'm afraid we have to be very brief. But let me just make a few points. Listen to what Stephen says in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts turned to Egypt. Just like the patriarchs had done with Joseph, they hated and rejected the one that God had sent to save them. So the Hebrews, they hated and rejected the one that God had sent to save them, Moses. And they rebelled against Moses seemingly every day of those 40 years in the wilderness. And just as the fathers had done, and it's interesting, Moses, he leads them out of Egypt. He brings them to the foot of the mountain. He ascends uh, the Mount Sinai to receive the law, which were God's pledge of his covenant relationship. Moses ascends to meet with God, to hear God's gracious words of commitment to his people. And what are his people doing in the meantime? (laughs) They demanded of Aaron, make us a God. And they made that golden calf. And you remember what Aaron said. We just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this golden calf. You know, just as the patriarchs rejected Joseph, the Hebrews, they rejected Moses. At every turn, they rejected the one that God sent them. God sent to them to save them. And now the Jews were doing the same thing with Jesus, rejecting the very one, hating the very one that God sent to save them. And what's so sad is that these Hebrews in the wilderness Every time their faith was challenged, when the situation demanded them to walk by faith and not by sight, when, when circumstances told them, you have no other hope but God and God alone, you must trust God. Every time their faith was challenged, they turned from trusting God to serve the idols. And how about us? Now, God, God brings us to the place where we are emptied, where we have no more strength left, 
That's the purpose of trials. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, God will never grant me trials that I cannot handle. I understand the intent. But you know, actually that's false. The purpose that God sends trials is to make us realize that we cannot handle them. That we need God. So the trials of our lives, the things that we suffer, are meant to empty us of ourselves. To realize that we have no other hope but God alone. But that's also where our faith is challenged, our discipleship is challenged. Because circumstances like that, it makes us wonder, why? Why are you doing this, God? What are you doing? How can I trust that you love me when you do this to me? Well, loved ones, let me encourage you and remind you, it's there. And then that we need to lean in and take our stand. And remember that God, God comes to our help when we have no other hope but God. You know, it's as that beautiful hymn puts it, O love that will not let me go. One of the stanzas, it says this, O joy that seeks me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Are you weary today? Are you broken today? Do you feel empty? Where would you turn for strength? Would you make Jesus your refuge? How can you possibly know that he loves you though he grants you these suffering and pain? You know it because he went to the cross for you. He died for you. He lived for you. He rose for you. So if you are weary, if you are broken, if you are empty, make Jesus your refuge. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us through these words. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would discover in these words not only the fault and the failings of the uh, Jewish people, but that we might discover in these words the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we come to you, for we too suffer, for we too are anxious and we are afraid and we feel empty. And we pray that you would guard our hearts, that we may never turn to other idols to find comfort and security. But may we find our strength and our hope in you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.